Welcome to Surviving Saturday, a podcast about holding on to hope in the midst of life's difficulties, disappointments, and dark seasons. Times like that remind us of the agony and despair the followers of Jesus felt on the Saturday of Easter weekend, in between the Friday on which he was crucified and the Sunday on which he rose from the dead. That Sunday forever changed the way that humans can relate to God. But what does it look like to be honest about the very real pain we experience in the in-between? To fervently cling to hope in the God who promised us His peace and His presence, at times when He feels distant or even cruel. I'm Wendy Osborne, a licensed counselor in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm her husband, Chris, a marriage mediator, conflict resolution coach, and trauma-informed story work coach. Join us each episode for authentic conversations about how life not turning out as we'd expected has created the contextual soil for the growth of a tenacious hope in the resurrection and in a God who is still making all things new. So today we're going to talk about a time in our marriage. It was early on. We had been married about four years. And it was two years after we were up in this beautiful part of the country. Do you remember what I'm going to say? Yes, yes. We were up, uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, we were recording these first episodes from up in beautiful New England. We're in Maine, in Bahaba. And uh, yeah, about two years after we had gotten back to Charlotte, I started my job. You were working, I think, at first at Charlotte Institute of Rehab, and then that did not work out great, and you ended up transitioning over to CMS schools and doing pediatric speech work there. Yes. And what I'm talking about today happened a little bit after that. And we had just found out we were expecting our first child. Yes. So this would have been 1997. And um, before we had shared with anybody, um, we realized that your mother had cancer. Yes. She actually, her doctor was a uh, father of a, one of my best friends growing up, and he called and kind of gave us the heads up that he was going to have to tell her the bad news on a biopsy that he had done of uh, some breast tumor. Um, and so we kind of got that heads up, and I think we we were sitting on the knowledge that we were expecting Savannah, right? Yep. And so, <laughs> yeah, so we went ahead and told your mom to buffer um, what she was getting ready to hear. Yes. So that she could... Um, we knew how excited she would be. It was the first grandchild for both um, families, both sides of the family. But your mom was single and was going to be going through this battle with cancer. And so we went ahead and leaked the news to her first when we knew. Yes. And so it kind of, we, we didn't even really appreciate this until years later, but it's sort of the, the whole of our first child's life was really colored by the mom's journey with, with cancer through chemotherapy, radiation on, you know, for, for 12 more years until she passed away in 2010. But really that was an element of life for us for that whole season. Um, that was super, super challenging. In fact, there was one point we thought about moving to Atlanta where she was, we actually considered it, maybe even looked at some places and we got some good counsel not to, because we barely had uh, a support network or. Well, we had a really good one here and we would be stepping into none there. Yes, that's what it was. Right. And so it seemed like a lot for us to care for her in the absence of our own community. And the wisdom we got was that with support and community that we had here, we'd be able to care for her. And that was, that was true in a sense, but what it meant was she was 
with us a lot. She mm-hmm. came up and stayed with us a lot. She'd come and stay for weeks at a time. My sister was, uh, had just finished college and was, you know, getting established in her career and she could, you know, take care of mom for stretches of time. But then there'd be times she wanted to be with us because of the grandkid and then she um, needed to be with us. And, and so we, we sort of had started off on that whole journey of, okay, we're bringing a new life into the world mm-hmm. and we're dealing with, is mom going to, you know, at that time we didn't know what her prognosis mm-hmm. was. She had a really good prognosis as it turned out, but she had uh, radiation, chemotherapy, the whole nine yards on that first go round. Yeah. And so right before we found out about her diagnosis, but probably after we knew we were pregnant, so this was in the first eight to 10 weeks, um, I overheard you on the phone with a friend. Yes, this definitely happened while we were still expecting. Um, one day, a uh, friend of mine uh, called. This is back when we all had landlines, and this was a call on the house phone, and I picked it up. It was before going to work, uh, and Wendy heard part of a conversation uh, with this guy was in my uh, Bible study group that we had at the time, and he basically had called and asked me to come and get his hard drive from his laptop. Because during the course of our uh, accountability relationship, we had kind of like we called it a prayer triad, I think. And he had mentioned that he had struggled with looking at this was, again, 1998. So this is very early in the dawn of the Internet age. But with looking at um, pornographic images uh, or salacious or lust provoking images on the Internet, he had mentioned as a prayer request uh, to just us guys before that, that, you know, his wife was going to be gone. That was going to be a hard time of temptation. And somebody asked, you know, do we need to take your computer? Do we need to, you know, what do we need to do here? And he said, no, I'm fine. And then this was him calling and saying, oh, I've had a stumble. Um, I need you to come and get my, you know, hard drive on your way to work. And so I, I, I said, okay, I hung up from this call. And when he's like, well, who was that? I was like, well, it was my friend and, and said his name. She said, well, what did he want? Why is he calling him? This is unusual, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. And I was like, because he wants me to come get something on the way to work. And that, again, not a very satisfying answer to Wendy. What in the heck? Um, and what I didn't know is that this was uh, so, so I explained to her, well, what he asked for and why. And she was sort of shocked. Like, this is something you talk about. Why are you talking about this? And that was where I had to say, well, because this is the thing that, that some men talk about that men need to talk about because it's a struggle. And as it turns out, it had been uh, a bit of a struggle for me. Um, This was, uh, I think, in the age of America Online and dial-up, but I had discovered fairly quickly that the uh, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit uh, Edition was, which was my sort of uh, a a place that I went a lot growing up um, and uh, learned kind of a lot of my own journey of self-soothing and sort of escape and dissociation up. It was available online. Um, and so I'd found that there were bathing suits and pictures of cheerleaders and things like that. And this was not something Wendy and I had discussed at all or was even on the radar. In fact, what was your level of kind of awareness or understanding of any of that? Um, I would say very naive and I would say, um, very uncomfortable with my own sexuality. And so in short, it was devastating to me. Yeah. It was devastating in a way that I could not even have imagined or predicted. Um, I had kind of bought into the myth as a lot of us sort of raised in, uh, eighties and late night, early nineties purity culture of, you know, 
you save yourself for marriage and we guys are all, you know, can't wait until, okay, we're going to get married and then we can have sex and all these natural urges and drives that are in us and so bad that we have to battle against now, they will have their free, you know, place to be and, and all will be, you know, swimming in roses and you'll never have to struggle with that again. And that had not been the case. Um, I think our, you know, uh, physical relationship had been challenging and not as, you know, smooth and free flowing again, more damage from purity culture, I'd say, but you can speak to that side of it. Yeah, there's probably more than I want to go into here, but there, there was a lot of harm I had suffered that I was not aware of at this point in life. And um, so I was at war, not just with my own body, but with myself as a sexual being. And so to, um, Think about you following lusts um, of other images devastated me. I can sort of feel my heart begin to race now. Yeah. And and long story short, I mean, that was really devastating. Um, it, it really meant that it, it, if my image as the good guy, the nice guy, the great husband, which I sort of invested a lot in and thought I was, you know, able to pull off. If it hadn't been shattered before that, it was done. It was completely exploded at that point. I felt probably as low as I had ever felt in life, uh, as terrible as I ever felt. Uh, the more I learned about what it landed on for Wendy, because um, we didn't really have a handle at, yet, yet at that point and how much she struggled with body image and just belief in herself and all that. Yeah, I think at that point, I didn't see it as a struggle. I saw it as a truth. It's a place where evil had really come at me hard. And so I had gone um, for several years without being willing to look in the mirror unless it was absolutely necessary. So I had such a hatred toward my own body that um, my first reaction was I should have known better. I should have known better than to think that a man would be loyal to me and to this body. And so um it took me into a, a deep spiral of shame. But at the same time, I was pregnant, um, which was super exciting um, to be expecting a baby, especially our first. Um, and then your mother, to whom I was very close, was diagnosed with cancer. So we were facing birth and mortality at the very same time. Um, as I was finding out about this struggle of yours. And I think I was, uh, I was definitely desperate, um, to, to try to fix things. I was, I, I would say I was clean to the gospel. Um, as much as I could at that time, it became less and less theoretical. I think that, that had always been a private struggle and between me and God and maybe me and an accountability partner or some guy I talked with, there was where I really started to see the harm and started to see this is not a victimless crime, a victimless issue. This has impact on the people involved in making such stuff, but also on the people I love around me. And so I would say that began a period of, of you know, relative strength and freedom from that uh, challenge for me, partly because of fear, partly because of, oh my gosh, I don't want to get caught with that, but I also don't want to do anything that kind of harm again. And, I, and, and then it also was a season as we were, you know, expecting a child and that took a lot of energy and time anyway. I didn't, you know, have time and energy for too much else. Um, but uh, it was, I, I would say, I know you've spoken to sometimes when you're feeling like, you know, 
we kind of shortcut that whole subject. Yeah. And that's because of what I'll get to in just a second was yes. going on at the same time. But um, I didn't share the devastation or the struggle with anybody for about 15 years. Um, I was so convinced that this was a confirmation of the undesirability of my body that I was too petrified. And so when we talked in the last episode about shame and keeping people apart and hidden, that was exactly um, how evil used that experience for me. But yeah, if we fast forward um, not long down the line, um, we had our first child and she was about eight months old and you felt a lump in your neck. And this is the second time we had dealt with this. So why don't you yes. share that? Yes. So actually when I was in my first year of law school, so I was in uh, Virginia, you were doing your grad school in Georgia. Um, I got mono actually, which explained why I had been falling asleep a fair amount in uh, some of my afternoon classes in particular. Um, diagnosed with mono and had swollen lymph nodes and all. And then uh, as I got better from that, which didn't take very long, all my lymph nodes went back down to right size, except for there was one place that stayed swelled on my right side of my face, kind of in front of my ear. And so a very astute ENT at uh, UVA Medical Hospital uh, examined that and said, we need to do a biopsy of this. And he biopsied it and found um, benign tumor material, um, a, a benign tumor of the parotid gland. And so uh, what that meant was, thankfully, it happened towards the end of the semester and I actually was home in Albany um, and could have that uh, parotid gland tumor surgically resected. The same doc who actually diagnosed my mom's cancer later, um, we jump back in time, uh, he's the doctor who performed that surgery. Um, and that was probably your introduction to sort of caregiving for, for me, mm -hmm. uh, but not a big deal. It was no, kind of it was outpatient very easy. thing, yeah. super in and out easy. So when this lump appears, uh, you know, six years later in 1998, um, now we've got a situation where, oh, okay, there's another lump there. And the doc's like, hey, we'll go in, we'll do the same thing as last time, set it up for a three hour outpatient surgery one day. And so I think we arranged for some family to be there uh, initially. Um, and then what happened is you're sitting out there in the waiting room because I'm conked out this whole time. Yeah. So originally we just had friends keeping our baby, but she spiked a fever the day before. And so my parents graciously came to keep her while I was at the hospital with you for what we thought would be um, a morning long outpatient surgery. And so I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. And it was coming close to the time that I had been told we'd be going home and I'd heard nothing and started um, calling friends, asking for prayer, trying to find any medical professional. I was kind of in this waiting room that seemed to be closed off unto itself. And um, so eventually two doctors um, stepped off the elevator and called my name just as a pastor friend um, came down another hallway. And so at that point, they told me that they had actually found hundreds of tumors and um, they had never seen such multiplicity of tumors when the situation was benign. And so they asked if I wanted them to continue the surgery 
and pull in another surgeon because given the five branches of the facial nerve in the area where the tumors were, they'd have to be just incredibly delicate to try to save your um, form and function of your face. And so they said, do you want us to wait and biopsy everything and decide, or do you want us to keep going? And I remember just blurting out, you have to keep going. If you think it could be cancer, you can't stop. And they said, okay, we, that's what we will do. And so we will get another surgeon and we will give you updates every hour or two throughout the process. And that lasted, um, I think the surgery itself was about 12 hours. Yeah. And I was out 14 completely. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm oblivious to all this Mm because she's had to make this call. um, And the surgeons described it. They had to keep spelling each other. That's why they brought another doc in. They described it as being like picking concrete off of dental floss to try to, you know, extract it and preserve the facial nerve. We weren't sure what level of paralysis I would have or Mm -hmm. anything. I wake up and I'm just sore as all get out. I have been cramped in this one position mm-hmm. and up on my side and where you're not supposed to be for that long. And then I had a difficult time with the Foley catheter extraction and with kind of the meds coming out of that. I was probably out of my gourd, you know, for a day or two. Um, but what was that like for you in terms of the care that you had there with you while these docs are giving you updates every few hours or so? Well, it, it was petrifying. I mean, I was 28 with an eight month old and, um, you who, um, were my husband and closest attachment figure were out. And so I was left alone navigating this. Now, a ton of friends joined me up in the waiting room and there was a lot of prayer and a lot of um, support. People brought meals, people planned all kinds of things. They helped with childcare. Um, But underneath it all, it was super scary. Now is also, um, I feel like Jesus showed up in the faces and the bodies of those people unlike I had ever experienced. So it was transformative. Um, And it was also really scary. So it was both. Um, And uh, you mentioned our our friend, the pastor who showed up. How, How was that? Had that play in terms of, you know, God giving you some care? Yeah. I mean, he, he called his elders, he called friends, he cleared his calendar. Um, he set up a meal train. He, um, checked on me almost every day for a while. And so it was incredible care. I think he was there with you until like they wheeled me out of recovery. Yeah. Until I could go in and join you in recovery. And he waved at the door. Yes. Cause yeah. you were still out. They were, um, taking, um, you off the meds, but you were still very much out until the next day. And you hadn't really experienced that kind of presence, that kind right. of tender care. Um, and so that kind of, you know, happened in the middle of this whole season of we're adjusting to this new child, mm-hmm. um, which, which was a challenge in and of itself. Um, I, I really had some misimpressions about babies in general. I thought they came out like the Gerber baby, kind of crawling and smiling and playing with toys. And that is not how that works. No. Nope. Um, it was uh, a lot of adjustment. And, and our oldest uh, had challenges with sleeping in particular, mm-hmm. um, not going to sleep at night. We were trying to make sure that they learned to sleep. Oh, my gosh. Um, but it was just a a really gut-wrenching time. Um, what did that that sort of facing my mortality what did that land on for you though? 
Well, it took me a long time to see past the fear. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I think my body had felt anxiety for a lot of my life and I just had never known what to call it. Um, and it was cloaked in a lot of shame. Like if, uh, like I've said before, if I were struggling, it was something I was doing. And so it took me years to be able to get outside of the story enough to see what was actually happening, but it was landing on themes in my life, um, like me needing to be the strongest one in the room. So I needed to be the one to care for a baby. I needed to be the one that cared for my mother-in-law as she was enduring chemo. And then I needed to care for you while you did seven weeks of daily radiation. Um, and there was nowhere I could exactly turn. I mean, I had friends bringing meals. I had friends keeping our child. I had a lot of support, but nobody that was able to hold me in the ways that I probably needed to be held, but at the same time was not going to give myself freedom to be held um, because I thought, well, if I can keep going, then I should. Yeah. And we felt sort of like this spectacle of that, you know, needing all this care. Um, certainly um, for me, it was very, it was very fortunate. I was working for a, a judge um, and I had probably the best work set up I could have had to have yes. something like this happen. Yes. Very, we stayed on top of things. This judge was ahead of deadlines, was very understanding, was a very lived out family first. You got to do what you got to do for your family. And we got our work done and there was no FaceTime or showing up or, you know, busy work. It was, you know, it was real work, but um, we stayed on top of it. And so at, it was as good a time. I wasn't billing anybody by the hour, which was nice to have to go. And because the whole each, you know, radiation visit, even though they only radiate you for about a minute or two, there's, you know, all the setup and, down, and you had sores in your mouth and you couldn't eat. Oh, and yeah. It was, was it was painful. And yeah, it was it was a hard, hard, long season. We mm -hmm. lived on meals that people could bring to us and they would have to bring something that I could, you know, slurp down like a smoothie or something with a this kind of, you know, the radiation therapy. So we didn't mention, but because it was so diffuse throughout the the parotid bed, they they recommended this radiation. And it, so it basically zaps the whole side of my face. Uh, it took a while for my facial uh, performance of my lip, you know, to kind of come back. They were weren't sure I'd be able to get salivation on that side, so it was a. I was yeah. bringing out my old speech pathology oral motor exercises <laughs> That's to right. try to get movement back in your lip and your tongue. I think and I remember. Eyelid. I remember the stack of tongue depressors that yep. I was supposed to try to get my my teeth around to yep. try to get jaw movement back. Yeah. Um, but this was just super disruptive for us. Again, we're still adjusting to, you know, an eight month old, a one year old. And the thing we'll mention as we bring this episode to a close, we'll come back to it later. But um, we really never got to fully dive into all the effects of what my struggle with the lust type things, where that landed. We had no clue of the complexity of it. Wendy really didn't give a get a chance to connect with herself and figure out what is this doing? How is this landing? I meanwhile was in super, I think, you know, performance, get it all done mode. If you had asked me what I was feeling at the time, I don't know that I could have said anything. I would have had an answer, but I was basically, I've got to get my work done. I've got to survive this. I've got to parent a child. I've got a mom with cancer. I wasn't thinking about, you know, who am I? What do I need? What do I feel? Um, and that felt normal. It's, it's not, and it's certainly not healthy, but it felt like for me, 
everybody is sort of sick or needs something. And that, that's how my mom had been kind of growing up. That's a whole separate subject. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, get it done, put your head down, um, dive into church, you know, do whatever. Um, but we were definitely, uh, later we came back around to and had to, to recognize that, that the interruption of that grief and the interruption of dealing with that, uh, was staying with us. Um, it was, it was an underlying unresolved tension or thing that we really couldn't name until a lot later. Yeah. It took years and years for me to finally see that the core terror for me was being left alone. Um, both that shame made me feel I needed to be alone, but also the fear that no one would come and find me in the aloneness. And so I think on both ends, I felt I would be left. I would be left by a mother-in-law who could die of cancer. I would be left by a child who would one day grow up and her job would be to leave. I would be left by you either um, to death or to lust. And so I was sitting in the middle of this swirling cocktail of what was going to be the pecking order of how would be left and didn't, um, didn't understand or value myself enough to even be able to stay with myself. And so I was just spiraling a lot of shame. Yeah. This was definitely one of those Saturday moments that we talk about. It was like a Saturday season really. Yeah. And we really, um, I'm not, I don't know how we kind of made it through, but we sort of toughed it out. Um, when we come back on the next episode, we'll drop in around there uh, because we then had some other challenges that came from other directions, uh, vocationally and otherwise, that really kind of sent us even further for a loop, if you can imagine that. But stay tuned and we'll see you on the next episode of Surviving Saturday. The Surviving Saturday podcast is brought to you by Nurture Counseling PLLC, a counseling teaching and training center based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. We help families flourish one story at a time. Nurture Counseling provides counseling, counseling intensive for couples, conflict resolution coaching, story work groups, seminars, workshops, and retreats to provide a safe and welcoming context for exploring the agonizing experiences of pain, brokenness, and evil that disrupt our lives and that God often uses to nurture deeper trust and intimacy with Him and with each other. You can find us online at www.nurturecounseling.net.